Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We are down to just four teams left in college basketball's biggest tournament. BetOnline has you covered with all of the lines, the odds, the props, and more for this championship weekend. Head over to their website or use your mobile device to sign up today and get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take. It Easy Podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is March 29th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in, however and whenever you may be listening. We've got a great show, really great show coming at you today. I'm very excited to talk about this stuff because I've been sitting on this topic specifically that I wanted to bring up in our A block for about three days. And I've been sitting on it and doing a little bit of research here and there, crafting what I want to say, and now I'm ready to present it all to you here on this fine Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or whenever it is that you may be stopping in. Our main topic of the day concerns Tyreek Hill, the disgruntled wide receiver who is now the highest paid wide receiver to go play for the Miami Dolphins. We've broken down the football part of it, but what we didn't break down on the podcast last week was the moral and ethical and legal conflicts of Tyreek Hill that have always followed Tyreek Hill in a really complicated path in the way that we talk about intimate partner violence. And so Tyreek Hill last week gets traded pretty unpromptly. Like, you know, when I talked about how there's a lot of news breakers, more so than there is news in the NFL, and there was not really any conversation about Tyreek Hill getting traded, and then Tyreek Hill was able to pursue a trade, and then an hour later he was traded to the Miami Dolphins, of which we also laughed at the Jets, and we also, you know, talked about all of the football analyst stuff there, but we kind of skipped over this, and on Thursday last week, I was flying back to uh, Sacramento from San Diego, and during that hour flight, I started thinking about the Tyreek Hill history with intimate partner violence and domestic violence that I had forgotten a lot of the details on. And if we had been doing this story correctly, we would have been proactive in our discussion about Tyreek Hill. And 
on that Wednesday before, I was mediating a conflict between a group that I'm a leader of outside of the podcast that took up a good four hours. I was spending the day with my grandparents and going through all kinds of stuff. And so after we recorded the oral history of Gonzaga, I kind of just needed to get something out as an A block and into the force of habit, uh, you know, what what you might call the autopilot mode of creating content because this is now episode 897 of the Take It Easy podcast and sometimes we just make content for a day, just get it out there and let the people consume what they want to consume. So after doing the oral history of Gonzaga, I just needed a 10-minute topic to introduce the podcast and that naturally was, let's talk about the football transaction of Tyreek Hill and that was too short of a medium to talk about the Tyreek Hill moral ethical conflicts. And at the same time, this is something that has much larger implications. And I think if I had to do it over again, we would have just skipped over the full Tyreek Hill conversation until we could have had a longer form discussion about Tyreek Hill like we're going to have today. And we also talked about it a little bit with our friend Blake Jude that was also on Thursday before I got on the plane flight back home. And then we had memes of the weekend come up yesterday. And now we have an opportunity to talk about Tyreek Hill. And so that's on me. It was not as proactive as we should have been in discussing the Tyreek Hill stuff other than the 30 seconds we had during Thursday's episode of mentioning that Tyreek Hill has had legal issues in the past and hasn't faced suspension or a measure of accountability from the NFL. And so that's on me. We could have been more proactive in how we talked about the story. We've got a chance now to make up for it. And so I had forgotten most of the stuff that happened in the Tyreek Hill case. And it took him being a national news story to remind me and go research some of the stuff that was in his past. Because we'd known that Tyreek Hill had issues with domestic violence and allegedly assaulting his son. And that was the thing that put him on suspension or put him on essentially administrative leave or the exempt list during the 2019 offseason in the NFL. So Tyreek Hill was placed on the exempt list. He just didn't lose any game checks for being placed on the exempt list while there was an investigation into that case. And we'll do the full timeline of Tyreek Hill in a second, but I had forgotten about the details there. And like I said before, we didn't really take a proactive approach. We talked about Deshaun Watson, you know, three to four times in between his legal case, even when there wasn't breaking news. We were proactive in discussing a sports story of a generation. And Tyreek Hill is a different crime in nature and it's actually criminal as opposed to Deshaun Watson which is crossing the creepy line and crossing the moral and ethical line while not reaching the bar for criminal behavior and we were also talking about Henry Ruggs and um, drunk driving and how society places a value on life and is proactive in changing the number of drunk driving incidents so with Henry Ruggs the weekly news cycle moves on from the topic 
and we have to be proactive in talking about those stories. We did one time with Henry Ruggs. We haven't circled back around to it because there's a lot of stuff to talk about and the news cycle kind of swallows up stories in a lot of these cases. None of these are excuses for pushing the Tyreek Hill story down the road. It's just explaining that that's what ended up happening. Wasn't the best way to handle the situation in terms of the timeline. It should have been morals, ethics, and legal stuff. And then going into the football stuff, because Tyreek Hill has a really, really complicated story with the law and with morals and ethics and trying to decide how to draw the line, especially when we're putting the line of we want to publicly shame the Cleveland Browns for being the team that actively traded for a sexual predator. Tyreek Hill has an interesting road where Kansas City chief greatness ends up being the thing that supersedes the accusations of Tyree Hill, especially when those accusations came at a time when he wasn't really the same household name that we think of Tyree Hill as now. Although 2019 isn't that long ago. It was about a year before the Kansas City Chiefs won that first Super Bowl. So it wasn't that long ago. It was Mahomes' first season in Kansas City that we're talking about here. By the way, people forget also, on a quick football aside, that time he was put on leave, they drafted Meikle Hardman in the event that they weren't going to get Tyreek Hill back. So we could have been more proactive in our discussion with Tyreek Hill, similar moral conflicts. We aren't perfect. It's an opportune time to discuss this, though. And Sporting News did a really good job of laying out the timeline of Tyreek Hill. And I'm going to link that story in the description to this episode if you want to read the full thing. But there's a really good timeline of what's happened in Tyree Kill's case. And so Tyree Kill is now the highest paid wide receiver in the NFL while facing a numerous a, a numerous case a history of numerous cases of domestic violence and he has also faced child abuse investigations while also being in the NFL. So here is Tyree Kill's timeline of domestic assault and domestic abuse. So after this is directly quoting from the Sporting News article. After a couple of seasons at Garden City Community College, Tyreek Hill in 2014 chose to play Division I football at Oklahoma State. He would only play one season for the Cowboys thanks to his arrest on domestic violence charges. Crystal Espinal, Hill's girlfriend who was eight weeks pregnant with his child, told police an argument late on the night of December 12, 2014 at Hill's Stillwater home escalated to physical violence. Espinal said she was, she was choked by Hill, who also punched her in the stomach and the face. Still in pain in her stomach, she, was, she said she was concerned about the baby. Hill spent the night in jail and on the next day was charged with felony domestic assault and battery by strangulation. That day, Oklahoma State announced it had dismissed Hill from the football and track programs. Quote, Oklahoma State University does not tolerate domestic abuse or, or violence, the school said in a statement. Hill initially pled not guilty. In August, represented by a new defense attorney after reportedly failing to meet monetary obligations with Cheryl Ramsey, Hill pleaded guilty to the charges and, thanks to a plea agreement with the district attorney's office, received three years on probation. According to the Oklahoman, 
Quote, the plea agreement was eventually reached thanks in part to Hill's voluntary efforts. Along with more than $1,000 in fines and court costs, a DNA sample, two years of state supervision, and proof of employment or student status, Hill's probation required he complete an anger management course and a 52-week batterer's intervention program. And then afterwards, the charge would be wiped from his record. In 2015, West Alabama coach Brent Gilliland, 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 Brent Gilliland allowed Hill to join the football team. He played only one season for the Tigers before entering the 2016 NFL Draft. Crystal Espinal eventually gave birth to Hill's son. So that is where I'm going to put a pause and circle back to in a second, because this is now a case being processed while Tyreek Hill is in college and before he reaches the NFL. There was a measure of accountability for Tyreek Hill in this situation. His guilty plea led to him also, you know, actually facing monetary consequences, physical uh, consequences in the court system where he had to, you know, whatever you think about batterer's intervention program and anger management courses and probation being an accountability measure in this situation. There was a legal measure of accountability in this situation, and Tyreek Hill was kicked off of the football and track teams at Oklahoma State. And so I look at that and I say, these are appropriate consequences for the situation. It feels like some measure of accountability was held to Tyreek Hill in this situation. The other part that makes this story incredibly complex is that Espinal and Hill remain together after the incident which is incredibly complex in cases of intimate partner violence, which is you still love the person who is abusing you, and sometimes the abuse can change the mental, you know, it's hard to find the person you love in that position in such a way that even after the events, you still want to remain with the person. And these are incredibly complex things that I'm not going to play part-time psychologist on here. It just adds another layer to the complexity of this story. There was a measure of accountability for Hill for the event that happened in college, and he gets another chance at West Alabama, clearly a lesser program willing to take a chance on a talent like Tyreek Hill, and so that's where there's a measure of accountability, not just in the legal system, but also in Tyreek Hill having a penalty as in you're not allowed to play at Oklahoma State University. You're still allowed to play football, and you still have the possibility to get drafted. You're just not able to play at Oklahoma State. And so now we move to the Tyreek Hill NFL draft controversy. Quote, Tyreek Hill was not invited to the NFL Combine and, due to his 2014 arrest, was not expected to be drafted in part because Hill ran a 4-2-5-40 at his pro day, the Chiefs were willing to take a risk. Kansas City drafted Hill in the fifth round of the 2016 NFL Draft at number 165 overall. Quote, I just want everybody to understand we have done our due diligence with regards to fully vetting each one of our draft class members, said then-general manager John Dorsey. We would never put anybody in this community in harm's way added Chiefs coach Andy Reid, there has to be a certain trust here. 
but there's just things that we can't go into and go through. We want people to understand, like Dorse said, we're not going to do anything to put this community or this organization in a bind. We uncovered every possible stone that we possibly could, and we feel very comfortable with that part of it. Many Kansas City Chiefs fans were upset with the selection. At rookie minicamp in 2016, Hill told reporters he understood their concerns. Quote, The fans have every right to be mad at me, Hill said. I did something wrong. I let my emotions get the best of me, and I shouldn't have did it. They have every right to be mad. But guess what? I'm fixing to come back. Be a better man. Be a better citizen. And everything takes care of itself, and let God do the rest. Dominating as a punt returner and receiver, Hill earned three Pro Bowl selections and two All-Pro nods in his first three NFL seasons. Then, before the 2019 season, he found himself in trouble yet again. On March 15th, the Kansas uh, on March 15th, 2019, the Kansas City Star reported Hill was under police investigation for battery involving he and Espinal's three-year-old son, who had suffered a broken arm. By this time, Espinal had become Hill's fiance. The Chiefs said they were aware of the situation and allowed Hill to participate in teams in the team's off-season program in April. The investigation led to Hill and Espinal temporarily losing custody of their son. On April 25th, the Johnson County, Missouri District Attorney announced that neither Hill nor Espinal would be charged with child abuse, but that a crime had occurred, and the investigation remained active. The district attorney could not prove who did what to the child. The NFL said it would wait until the Kansas City Department of Children and Families concluded its own probe of the allegations before conducting its own investigation. Quote, I love and support my family above anything else, said Hill, who maintained all along he was innocent of committing a crime, via his attorney's statement. My son's health and happiness is my number one priority. I want to thank the Kansas City Chiefs, my attorneys, my agent, and my union for supporting me through this. My focus remains on working hard and being the best person for my family and our community, and the best player to help our team win. The next night, during the first round of the 2019 NFL Draft, a Kansas City television station released a recording of Hill, a 11-minute-plus recording of Hill and Espinal talking about what happened to their son the criminal investigation into alleged abuse, and how they handled it. This is a tweet from Therese A. Paler, who is a former NFL reporter, and he, well, former NFL reporter because he passed away in 2021, but it's a portion of the Tyreek Hill audio with Crystal Espinal. Espinal, quote, What do you do when your child is bad? You make him open up his arms and you punch him in the chest. Hill, you do use a belt. That's sad, Hill said. Even my mama says you use a belt. Espinal, quote, he's terrified of you. Hill, you need to be terrified of me too, dumb B-word. Early the next morning, the Chiefs suspended Hill indefinitely. GM Brett Veach said Hill would not take part in any team activities for the foreseeable future. Chief CEO and, the, and Chairman Clark Hunt broke his silence on the saga surrounding Hill that Saturday, saying the team would make the, quote, right decision at the right time. Hill's attorney issued a four-page statement to the NFL that dismissed the child abuse claims levied against Hill by Espinal. 
it was unclear at the time to what extent the league was investigating the matter. Quote, we will not interfere with that, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell told media in late May, adding the league had not yet interviewed Hill, citing the ongoing court proceeding as a reason, but that it had planned to do so. On June 7th, prosecutors say the child abuse probe involving Hill was no longer an active investigation, confirming Hill would not face charges. Circling back up to what was going on in March, they had concluded that a crime had occurred and the investigation remained active, but the DA could not prove who did what to the child. Two months later, they decided that, or I'm sorry, one month later, they decided that the case was no longer open and there was not going to be more information that was going to be brought to the surface. Later in June, Yahoo Sports reported Hill was scheduled to speak with the NFL. That meeting, on June 26th, reportedly lasted eight hours. Unnamed sources told Yahoo it was, quote, a positive day for Hill. On July 19th, the NFL declared Hill would not be suspended as a result of the league's investigation, which according to a release had been ongoing since the beginning of the saga, despite the NFL's claim it was leaving the matter to local law enforcement. Below is the league's explanatory statement. Quote, Over the past four months, we have conducted a comprehensive investigation of allegations regarding Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver Tyreek Hill. Throughout the investigation, the primary concern has been the well-being of the child. Our understanding is that the child is safe and the child's ongoing care is directed and monitored by Johnson County District Court and the Johnson County Department for Children and Families. Quote, in conducting our investigation, we have taken great care to ensure that we do not interfere with the county's proceedings or compromise the privacy and welfare of the child in any way. The information developed in court proceedings is confidential and has not been shared with us, and the court have sealed all law enforcement records. Local law enforcement authorities have publicly advised that the available evidence does not permit them to determine who caused the, ch the child injuries. Similarly, based on the evidence presently available, the NFL cannot conclude that Mr. Hill violated the personal conduct policy. Accordingly, he may attend Kansas City Chiefs training camp and participate in all club activities. He has been and will continue to be the subject of conditions set forth by the District Court Commissioner Goodell and the, and the Kansas City Chiefs, which include clinical evaluation and therapeutic intervention. If further information becomes available through law enforcement, the pending court proceeding, or other sources, we will promptly consider it and take all appropriate steps at that time. The NFL's decision not to discipline Hill stunned many around the league. The surprise stemmed, the surprise stemmed not from the alleged violence, even though the NFL's disciplinary process does not carry the same burden as proof as the legal system does, but from the threatening language in the recording. In particular, quote, you need to be terrified of me too, dumb B-word. So that's where I'm going to put a pause in this. Tyreek Hill's situation is in a place now, in 2019, where a second crime has occurred involving domestic abuse, and in this case, violence against his child. And the second crime is able to be concluded that a crime occurred, but unable to prove who did what to the child. And so in a bar of 
you know, the, the, the bar for domestic abuse in Kansas City slash Missouri is probably higher just given the county that it is and it's a red state. You see that Tyreek Hill and his fiance, well, girlfriend, then fiance, I believe now wife, did not have any charges brought upon them because they could not prove beyond a shadow of reasonable doubt who had committed what infraction to the child. And so this creates a really complex situation where Tyreek Hill doesn't get any sort of charge by the NFL and Tyreek Hill finds himself in a place where he's able to continue playing in the NFL without any suspension or without any sort of punishment. And I'm not saying the NFL's personal conduct policy is an end-all, be-all system. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult to process these situations because the legal system is not equipped to handle these situations. And in this one case, the NFL decided that they were going to defer to the legal system on this, despite the fact that the near 12-minute audio recording existed and they didn't they decided not to discipline Tyreek Hill which essentially means there is no measure of accountability for Tyreek Hill now this is the part that we can only speculate which is if this is the case that rose to the point of the court needing to intervene or the NFL needing to intervene when they break the arm of their child if that's the point where there's an intervention there are many cases of abuse of that child that we probably don't know about. We can't confirm it or deny it, but in a lot of these cases, the first incident isn't the one that rises to the point of going to the court. And this is the same thing that was articulated in the 11-minute audio transcript, which is they're talking about when their son is bad, they use a belt. Or when their son is bad, they punch him in the chest. These are things that suggest that this is a pattern of behavior beyond just the cases that can be at least brought to criminal charges. Because criminal charges can only be brought upon someone with a measure of evidence. And in this case, there's evidence that a crime did occur. They just can't figure out which child is responsible. And so the best you can do is put the child in Child Protective Services and not take away the freedoms of either Hill or Espinal. The problem is that creates a vacuum where there isn't a measure of accountability, and at the same time, I'm not sure what an appropriate measure of accountability is for that situation. It's just no accountability makes it seem like Tyreek Hill's getting away with being a child abuser and a spousal abuser and someone who is in a really complicated situation because, again, his partner still hadn't left him at the time. And so this is a really, really complicated situation where I'm not sure exactly what sort of accountability is appropriate in this case. We got a measure of accountability that, at least to me, seemed fair for the first Tyreek Hill domestic violence incident. The second Tyreek Hill domestic violence incident, at least the one that became public knowledge with the audio recording and you know the district attorney saying a crime had occurred it's one where there wasn't a measure of accountability and it's protected by a 
nuance within the legal system, which then brings us to the moral and ethical conflict of where do we draw the moral and ethical lines on this issue, and how much of this is a story of intimate partner violence, and how much of this is a story where Tyreek Hill is a famous person with a pattern of behavior that we are talking about him because he is the perpetrator. And by the way, we're inclined to believe that Tyreek Hill is guilty in this situation because Tyreek Hill is a man and because Tyreek Hill is a man of power. And we incline that Tyreek Hill is abusing that power in that situation. And by the way, you should be scared of me too, dumb B word is something that suggests that he is a powerful person using tactics of intimidation against his spouse. It's not to say that all of it isn't justified. It just brings back to the point that him and his girlfriend or fiance or whatever their relationship is now, he and the mother of the child both seem to be in the wrong in this situation, and yet neither has a measure of accountability apart from the child being taken away from them temporarily for a time being and them having to go through child protective services and check in every few months in Missouri County and probably now in the state of Florida, which I assume, just because it's Florida, I could be wrong, probably has a lower bar for this case, especially now that it's been three years since it was processed and while they go through the child protective services industry. And so this is a really, really difficult situation where morally and ethically, we need to draw the line because there hasn't been a level of contrition in this situation. It's a pattern of repeated behavior. And it all comes down to how much we value individually this case on a moral and ethical scale. And a lot of that has to do with our personal backgrounds and our experiences in this situation, being an ally to women who experience intimate partner violence and child abuse. And all of that stuff is really difficult and really complex. And I wish that there were great answers to this because clearly we're not drawing this at the same place as Deshaun Watson and probably for good reason. You know, Deshaun Watson's predatory behavior extends across dozens upon dozens of individual cases with women. And yet in the case of Tyree Hill, we can only assume that this is a pattern of behavior that has existed across six plus years because we have the audio tapes to, well, first of all, how often do things how often does the first thing you do escalate to a criminal investigation? It's not usually that often. It's only because you have the receipts of a broken arm that suggest something has happened here. There are probably plenty of cases, especially in abuse situations, where this is a pattern of repeated behavior over and over. And by the way, the audio tape suggests this is a pattern of repeated behavior over and over and over again between Hill and Espinal. And this is a really complicated situation because without we only know what we know, and so we can only speculate that this is the case, and it's human nature to believe that people are not monsters. And Tyreek Hill is drawing the—and by the way, there are exit ramps between Tyreek Hill is a monster and Tyreek Hill is innocent. There are bars in between there that we can exit on the moral and ethical line. It's just really difficult to figure out where to put it because clearly I had forgotten all the details. And in a classic case of we only know what we know, we didn't have all of the details available at our disposal at the time. And we, and 
then when details became available and the NFL exonerated Tyreek Hill, we kind of just moved on from it instead of drawing moral and ethical lines. And I think part of that is an evolution of character. I think that the Deshaun Watson case has evolved my character in the morals and ethics of sports, and it extends into talking about racial, um, the racial discrimination lawsuit with Brian Flores has helped improve talks about that, talking about Major League Baseball and some of the racial tensions there. It's helped me draw different moral and ethical lines of my own of just where I draw my morals and ethics, and so I think this is an evolution where now... I don't know exactly what to do with the Tyree Kill case, but I do know that I know more information now about this case than I did before. I don't know where to draw the moral and ethical line. At the very least, I feel more informed about this situation and understand that the reason we kind of ignored it in the past is because it was incredibly complex and we only know what we know. It's a pattern of repeated behavior that suggests that Tyreek Hill does have this behavior in his past, not just in college, but also in the NFL and with his, with his son and with his spouse, and yet his spouse remained together. And again, I'm not going to play armchair psychologist with that one. I just forgot a lot of the information there. I hope this is more informative around the case and helps you to form your own moral and ethical decisions around Tyree Kill by laying out the case because you might hear people talk I mean you might even hear me say Tyree Kill has a you know child abuse patterns in his past well let's lay out exactly what that was and I hope that this could be a slightly more informative layout of the Tyree Kill situation this show is presented by Athletic greens. We've told you about Athletic Greens before. With one scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to get your body right. Athletic Greens is one scoop in a cup of water every day, and that's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D. That's 365 days worth of athletic greens. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash believe. That's B-L-E-A-V. You can also use the link in the description to this episode. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. now expectations are always high out of dallas last year the cowboys won 12 games and coasted to the nfc east title that is before getting upended by my san francisco 49ers year three of the mike mccarthy era in dallas is upcoming according to overthecap.com dallas has the seventh most cap space in the nfl here to talk the dallas cowboys early offseason moves rj ochoa of sb nations logging the boys rj how's your day going man it's gone well. Thanks for having me. The uh, loss to San Francisco uh, really broke a lot of Cowboys fans. It's felt both like a day and like six years have passed uh, since then. So uh, it's uh, great to be reminded of that every single moment that I can be. Oh, you know, I, I definitely have to make it known being here in Central Texas as a Niners fan. You know, it's constantly walking around with the palpable presence of Cowboys fans. So, you know, every now and then just got to slip in that heartbreak. Uh, speaking of heartbreaking situations, though, yesterday... 
Uh, the Cowboys were finalizing a deal with Randy Gregory. Seemed like it was done. And then in the 11th hour, Randy Gregory becomes a Bronco. Uh, what broke down in those negotiations? And what's the contingency plan out there in Dallas? Like I mentioned, you guys have a lot of cap space heading into this one. Well, they have cap space now because they've created it. That you know, The Cowboys started off uh, in the red uh, like a handful of NFL teams. And they've, they've restructured deals of you know Dak Prescott's deal, Zach Martin's deal. They struck a new deal with DeMarcus Lawrence to create some salary cap space. And it really seemed like um, all those things, trading away Amari Cooper, were done in the name of keeping certain players around. Among them, obviously, players like Randy Gregory. And so there's a little bit of a he said, she said game happening, you know, between the Cowboys and, and Randy Gregory's representation. But it just it kind of seems like there was some at the very least confusion um, in the 11th hour, as you mentioned, uh, but that that the negotiations maybe uh, weren't exactly what, what either party would have liked throughout the entire process. And so it really just kind of was um, the final straw that broke the camel's back. Like you ever just have like a bad day and like the dumbest thing sets you off just because, you know, you're, you've kind of been ready to hit that boiling point. Not that this was a dumb thing, but but I think that it, it was that. It was that kind of just, you know, moment that everybody kind of needed to blow up. And unfortunately, everything dissolved. And there was an offer waiting for Randy, as you mentioned, from Denver. He took it. And so sometimes that just happens. But it, it was uh, a spectacular bit of chaos uh, for the Cowboys, as is usually the case. So with the Cowboys, the big news that made headlines was, of course, Amari Cooper. He was traded to Cleveland. They didn't get a lot of compensation for him, but Cleveland did take on pretty much all of his contract in the trade. So they kind of valued cap space and money over potential you know, draft compensation in that case. So uh, what do you make of the move? What does it mean for Dak? What does it mean for CeeDee Lamb? And what does it mean for the 2022 Dallas Cowboys? You say 2022, you know, it was very clear and obvious two years ago uh, that the Cowboys set up a decision from Mario Cooper this offseason in 2022. It was very obvious that his, his contract did have that escape hatch uh, this offseason to where the Cowboys would only have to eat $6 million of his $22 million overall salary. And that lined up, you know, you mentioned CD Lamb, but lined up with Michael Gallup's rookie contract expiring. Now, at the time of agreeing the terms with Amari Cooper two years ago, CD Lamb was in the NFL draft process. They did not know that they were going to land CD Lamb with the 17th overall pick. And I think that that really, really crystallized that idea of, okay, we're going to make a decision two years from now who to pair with CD in the long run. And, you know, a year ago, Michael Gallup was kind of regarded as this trade piece because he was entering the final year of his rookie contract. There were a lot of Cowboys fans, I know we wrote about it, you know, they talked about flipping, at the time, Michael Gallup for Stephon Gilmore. Obviously, this, again, predates Trayvon Diggs' kind of, you know, arrival last year. Uh, and then Digg, or Gilmore, excuse me, getting traded to Carolina. And so Michael Gallup had a phenomenal 2019 season with the Cowboys and Dak Prescott and was really off to a great start in 2020 before Dak Prescott got hurt. Michael Gallup obviously got hurt after the season opener, which really impacted his overall free agency candidacy this year. Then he tore the ACL in the penultimate game of the regular season. And so it's been this strange, like, are they actually going to go through with it sort of situation? But it does kind of seem like Amari had a bit of a falling out with the front office coaching staff, whoever you want to put, you know, on that label. But to your point, I mean, they really just wanted to get rid of his salary. I mean, and, and again, they, they set this up this way. Um, and so it was somewhat by design. Are they a better team without him? No. But the totality of how smart or stupid it is still does remain to be seen. And some of that involves luck. You know, are they able to use that salary cap space? on a now not Randy Gregory, but somebody else. Are they able to fortify their team in different senses? Does a Chris Olave or somebody fall to them with the 24th overall pick to where they still have another threat 
uh, on the outside opposite of Michael Gallup because C.D. Lamb, everybody wants to see him play primarily out of the slot, and that hasn't happened. But um, there are a lot of questions around it. it. It does make sense, and it was all put together in a plan, but whether or not C.D. is capable of taking over that that top role uh, remains to be seen. We have also yet to see Dak Prescott, not that he's incapable of it, but have yet to see him be this version of himself without Amari Cooper on the team. Um, so th- there are some questions. There are some concerns, but um, I-, I guess it's a little bit of an educated guess on the Cowboys' part. You mentioned it. Before that trade, before Amari was traded to Dallas, Dak was a pretty average quarterback about 90 less passing yards per game his qbr his passer rating about 20 points below his average with amari uh is it an oversimplification to say amari in good dak amari out bad dak what do you think is going to be the true impact of trading out amari for michael gallup essentially being the number one or number two. I do think it's it's a little bit of an oversimplification. You know, that 2018 season, which was really, you know, the worst part of Dak Prescott's career so far, the first half of it, it should be mentioned that earlier that offseason in 2018, the Cowboys cut Des Bryant and Jason Witten retired. So those were two really the first Jason Witten retirement, to be clear. There was some some startling change, and they really thought that they could go at this thing. That the term that they used all throughout the offseason was wide receiver by committee. Uh, they signed Alan Hearns. They still had Cole Beasley. They had Deontay Thompson as one of their free agent signings. They still had Tavon Austin, who they had traded for the year before. Um, so it was this just kind of collection of wide receiver parts, and nothing was really standing out. And nothing was really taking off or materializing. And so that was a struggle. And that was why the Cowboys ultimately, in an act of desperation, traded for Amari. He really, really saved them. Not, not that injuries are ever a good thing, but that was the season. You know, the Cowboys, the, they lost to Washington on October 21st of that year. Then the very next day, they traded for Amari Cooper. And a few weeks later, Alex Smith at the time was injured. And that was the, the terrible injury that he suffered. And that really has, has you know, put Washington in the place that they're, they're at still looking for a quarterback. And But at the time, you know, Washington was leading the division. It really looked like Alex Smith was going to lead them to a division title. And I don't know, you know, the, the Cowboys lost their first game with Amar. They, they were three and five after a Monday night loss to Tennessee. Actually, Jason Witten called that game on Monday Night Football, and then they ripped off five wins in a row, and that really validated who Amari was in the trade and really catapulted Dak Prescott into this different level of quarterback then because his rookie year was, was a very different season. The 2017 season for the Cowboys was really kind of plagued by the will Zeke be suspended, won't he be suspended energy that surrounded them every single week. So 2018 was kind of this first opportunity to really see Dak. And so Amari, you know, opened the door for him being an elite quarterback. We certainly saw that really take off Dak specifically had a lot of progression in 2019 uh michael gallup is a huge part of that and so i think there's a lot of hope and belief that 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 can happen but there's no question that that amari's absence will will create a lot more pressure and a lot more coverage that other players have to fight through that they haven't had to before and that's where somebody like cd lamb has to step up and and really kind of be the new answer but uh, you, you know the hope and belief is that you pay Dak prescott as much as you do for him to be the answer for him to be the difference and not for somebody else like amari cooper has there been any updates on the Ezekiel Elliott front? Because I know he had a slight dip in production two years ago, a little bit bounce back this year. Uh, obviously, he still has the huge contract and, you know, they've valued Amari Cooper in that situation. So is there anything new there or is he still central to the long term plan of the Cowboys? I mean, I, 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 you know, if you ask the Cowboys, they, you know, they'll die on the Zeke Hill. Um, in fact, two weeks ago, uh, in the lead up to the NFL Combine, Stephen Jones was asked about Amari Cooper and Demarcus Lawrence. And obviously, we've seen two different things happen to them so far. Amari's gone. Demarcus gets a new deal with the team. 
And, and the answer to that was, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, we're, we're looking at all parts of our roster, et cetera, et cetera. Very company line. Uh, but then he's asked about Ezekiel Elliott, and it's, he's a warrior. We love Zeke. He, he, what a guy, plays through injury. You know, his money's guaranteed. We, we're Obviously, we can't touch him. He's going to be around. And that's, I think every Cowboys fan is incredibly grateful to Zeke for, for what he's done and what he's meant to the Cowboys. It's been a really fun little era. But the evidence is just overwhelming that, that he's not the player he used to be, that, that Tony Pollard is a special player, uh, that Zeke is incredibly overpaid. And good for Zeke. I mean, good, good for Zeke winning those negotiations against the Cowboys. And, and that's a really frustrating thing. And so it's the Cowboys tend to kind of tell people it's raining, you know, when they're peeing down their leg when it comes to Zeke. And, and that really bothers people. But, but that's the bed they've made. And, and they want to make it. They want to lion it. They're very proud to make it and to lion it. They were very proud of the fact that Zeke played injured basically the entire season. Zeke said as soon as the, the season ended against the 49ers that he played, you know, through a partially torn PCL. It was revealed that that happened way early in the year when they played the Carolina Panthers. And so, you know, there's an argument to be made, a very good argument, that that a healthy Zeke is not the best runner on your team. So I don't know why you're prioritizing an injured Zeke Elliott, but the Cowboys remain convinced that that is the best way to win in today's NFL, which is a, a premise that a lot of data and substance and evidence overwhelmingly disagrees with. Um, and that's just um, that that in a nutshell kind of explains who they are in today's moment. Well, we're talking about the long-term plan for the Dallas Cowboys. It's important to note that Kellen Moore is still the offensive coordinator of this team. Mike McCarthy seemingly is going to be on the hot seat coming into this year. What, if anything, can Mike McCarthy do to save his job? Is that simply put, win a Super Bowl title, or is there like a lower bar that he can hit? You know, to be frank, I, I feel really terrible for Mike McCarthy. And it's been a really awkward offseason for him, really. I mean, from, from the very beginning, just about, you know, Jerry Jones does a lot of radio hits uh, throughout the week. He does two radio hits every single week during the season. And in his, his season-ending one on, on the home of the Cowboys, 105.3 The Fan, um, he was coy about Mike McCarthy's job status. He, he was asked. He was given multiple opportunities in that, that first interview to, you know, confirm that Mike McCarthy was returning for 2022 he didn't he acted all you know pissed off he huffed and he puffed and, and he blew down the the house of straw and the house of twigs uh you know just like the big bad wolf and the next week was filled with all the the coaching rumors and different coaches getting new jobs and, and, and filling different vacancies and things like that and, and obviously dan quinn was a head coaching candidate and he did not get the denver broncos or the chicago bears jobs those were the two that he was really heavily linked to the most and in in the aftermath of that it was you know as soon as those jobs are filled as soon as matt Eberflus, a former cowboy staffer got the bears job and you know Nathaniel Hackett got the, the Broncos job it was announced that Dan Quinn was returning to the Cowboys to be their defensive coordinator and Jerry did a, a surprise call-in you know session on the same radio station which he's known to do uh, and bragged about keeping Dan Quinn around and he actually said that it was his strategy to purposefully not confirm that Mike McCarthy was coming back to I guess in his mind uh, entertain for, for Dan Quinn to entertain the idea of potentially somehow inheriting the Cowboys head coaching job. And so there was a lot of undermining that Jerry Jones did. And that's just what he did. The Cowboys have, have had a sort of secret, but not so secret love affair with Sean Payton for a very long time. And so his retirement threw another wrench into this, you know, whole complicated storyline. And that's not Jerry's fault or the Cowboys fault. But again, they've, they've kind of, you know, had eyes for Sean Payton for a very long time. And then, you know, I'm sure you've discussed Mike McCarthy went on the Rich Eisen show and, and very, very firmly, you know, had some thoughts on, on what Jerry had had to say on Dan Quinn and everything like that. Yeah, I mentioned the NFL Combine the first day when McCarthy spoke. 
he did not have any Cowboys gear on. And so people read into that. I thought that was kind of silly. It's just been a very, very, very awkward offseason for him. It, it really does feel like a lame duck sort of thing. Trading away Amari Cooper doesn't help his cause, obviously. And so it does feel like, hey, you've got to win the Super Bowl or we're going to get rid of you. And, and I'm not a Mike McCarthy guy. I've gone to bat for him a lot. And I've really, you know, as, as new information has come out, this last season kind of unplayed itself. Um, you know, I, I adjusted my stance a little bit personally. But I do feel for him because I don't know how who, you can expect anybody in this situation to thrive or to flourish. And so it does feel like they're setting him up to be the fall guy, which is really unfortunate. What do you think is the next move for the Cowboys? Because we mentioned they have the seventh most cap space and not a whole lot of people other than Chandler Jones, maybe to throw that money at. And obviously the draft is coming up. They don't have a huge pick in the draft. They could obviously make some sort of trade. So what is the next move for Dallas? They're, they still have some players that they want to retain. J. Ron Curse was a, a safety they signed last year, kind of a journeyman at the time, played really well for them. So that's something that they're working on. We'll, we'll totally see if, if that works out. Obviously, they missed out on Randy Gregory. They would like to get a long-term deal done with Dalton Schultz, who they placed the franchise tag on. That would also create some more salary cap space this season uh, if they wound up happening. Um, they've already lost out on Cedric Wilson, who was uh, another potential guy to bring back. But, you know, they're going to, you know, they have needs that their most glaring needs now are at wide receiver and, and you know, at guard and, and maybe tackle if you don't believe in Terrence Steele, who's entering his third season with the team. They need help at linebacker need, you know, especially if they're going to move Micah Parsons around. Maybe they bring Leighton Vanderish back on, on a one year sort of prove it deal or something like that. Um, and so they generally tend to find the, their, their positions of need. They, they generally tend to, to sign these lower level free agents at this point in time, the second, the third wave, so they don't enter the draft with this absolute must-fill hole where if they don't get anybody at that position in the draft, then they're just kind of dead men walking. Um, so I think that's what's next. It's just kind of filling in the holes, um, so to speak. Like, you know, when you move out of an apartment and you take off all the stuff that's hanging and you go put, like, the toothpaste in the hole so you get your security deposit back? Like, that's, that's kind of what, like, they're about to do uh, in free agency. And so will they take a big swing at a Chandler Jones? You know, history would say no. They they haven't. There, I think there's this perception nationally that oh, Jerry will sign anybody. Jerry will do anything. They they are incredibly frugal in free agency. They do not like to sign the big name. Their last you know quote unquote big name signing was ten years ago. It was 2012. They signed Brandon Carr coming off his his time with the Kansas City Chiefs. He played you know moderately well for them, but he didn't have a thousand interceptions, and so he was regarded as a failure. Maybe they the the hottest name right now is Von Miller. Uh, NFL Network's Shane Slater reported that that he has interest in the Cowboys, but, um, you know, the price has to be right. And, and the price has to be right for Vaughn, too. And, and generally speaking, the Cowboys don't like the price that players like. And so I don't know. I mean, they, they have a need there. They're very clearly willing to spend money at, at edge rush for opposite of Demarcus Lawrence, as evidenced by the fact that they were going to give it to Randy Gregory. Um, so does it work out with Von Miller or Chandler Jones or Zadarius Smith? I don't know. It, it would stand to reason that they would walk away with somebody there. Maybe they might just sign Dorn or re-sign Dorrance Armstrong. But I think that's one of their more pressing needs right now, along with Jaron Curse. All right. RJ Ochoa, SB Nation, logging the boys. Thank you for coming on, joining us today, man. Anything else you're working on? Any other projects? Any other plugs? No, we're just... Um, not sleeping much right now. I mean, obviously, free agency is a, is a busy time of year. And uh, again, not that the Cowboys are, are doing anything notable, but their players are leaving. And so we're, we've, we've got trackers and, and updates and things we're doing. I'm uh, getting ready for our trip. 99 days. That's what it took to achieve labor peace and a new collective bargaining agreement in Major League Baseball. After all the blustering, all of the virtue signaling, it's over. Best part, we aren't even going to miss games, which makes the past several months of talk seem, in hindsight, really 
useless, really silly. We have an expanded playoffs. We have new rules that Kyle and I discussed last week. Owners have more money in their pockets with new playoff systems, ability to sponsor jerseys, and the clearing of a $500 million grievance from the 2020 season. Players have more money in their pockets with increases to the competitive balance tax, minimum salaries, in addition to the pre-arbitration pool. Overall, Kyle, do you think this was a deal both sides can be happy with? Yes. Um, I haven't dove into all of the nuances about who compromised what in the situation, but the fact that they came to a compromise in the first place was something that I, as the ultimate cynic, did not exactly uh, think was going to happen. I was talking about, you know, how long would it take to break the union? And it would be sometime between a month and sometime between a year. And then ultimately they came to a compromise. I was like, oh, didn't think that was going to happen. They started talking about international drafts and an extra luxury tax threshold, aka the steam. Steve Cohen tax. I just haven't read into what actually got implemented and what haven't. So I'm not sure who wins and who doesn't in the deal. But if both came to a compromise, it means it was a deal that possibly both sides were happy with. Although I will say that of the 38 union reps for Major League Baseball's Players Association, 30 players, one from each team, and eight lawyer representatives, all eight lawyer representatives voted to decline the new CBA, and 26 of the 30 player reps decided to accept the CBA. So it seems like maybe there was a disagreement within the players' union, but ultimately the players decided that this was a fair enough deal that they wanted to end up playing the full season, get full compensation, and get full service time going forward, even though it was probably likely that even if they canceled games, the players were going to get full service time for the season altogether. They ended up coming to a compromise in the end and baseball moves on forward. Full service time, but there is a chance that they may have missed out on parts of their salary. Depending on how many games they missed, the owners could said, I'm not going to pay you for 162 games when you only played 140, 120, or again, going back to the grievance that was dismissed in 2020, 60 games. We mentioned the international draft as it came to the final hours being a point that the owners wanted. Another one was the uh, $500 million grievance. And based off a lot of reports I was reading going into it, the players didn't really have a great leg to stand on in regards to that. I don't know if you remember the 2020 season. It wasn't just owners that were given a hard time about playing the full allotment of games. Players also didn't seem too jazzed to go out there and play during the COVID year as well. So it seemed like the 60 games actually became somewhat of a mutual decision that season. So the grievance itself, Easy to throw out some things I like because I, I did look at some cool things from this new CBA agreement for fans. So let's say you have a favorite interleague rival that you don't get to see your team play that often. So now moving forward, every team is going to play every team at least once a season, meaning that division games are going to be shrunken from 19 games a year to 14 games a year. I, I like this new construct of the um, pre-arbitration pool, or at least how it's designed. It definitely does incentivize players to ball out their rookie years. Uh, for example, if you were to win the MVP or the Cy Young in your rookie season, that would be a $2.5 million bonus. Second place finishers, 1.75. And third place finishers, 1.5. If you won the rookie of the year, that's a $750,000 bonus and $500,000 to the second place finisher. So being top two in your league, being the number one finisher in your league does have some potential money that could swing your way. Hey, if you're a fan, you can enjoy that too, because that means that your favorite player, yes, they're doing it for money, but they're also doing it to help your team and it works out for everyone. So it's a total win-win situation there. Uh, service time manipulation. So the top two players in rookie of the year get full years of service 
regardless of when they were called up. So they could be called up in July. And if they really made that much of a difference for your team and win rookie of the year, then guess what? They got their full year of service time. Also, you know, to combat the Chris Bryant rule, uh, teams that promote players to their opening day roster could get three draft picks if they receive rookie of the year votes or MVP votes. So we talked about, we want to see these guys sooner. We want to see these guys on opening day rosters, all these young guns from our team, all these prospects. Well, now teams have a reason to do that because if they have them on the opening day roster and they finish as MVP, if they finish as a rookie of the year, whatever the case may be, then they could get some benefits to their roster. And here's a big one, the draft lottery. Not as comprehensive as the NBA, as it's only going to apply to the first six picks. But we do have a draft lottery, which means we're going to see less tanking teams. In addition to the expanded playoff, that means more teams are going to be vying to get into the playoffs. If for nothing else, at least they get some playoff revenue from making it to the dance. A lot of things to just improve the quality of baseball and those rule changes I should add in 2023, bigger bases, banning of the shift, pitch clock, 2023. So next season, no need to get used to them now. The only thing that's taking place now is going to be the universal DH. Out of those, I don't know which ones you're aware of, which what's what are you starting like? So the one about the additional compensation for rookie of the year and finishing second or gold gloves or anything like that in the arbitration pool, I will say it's better than nothing. Like it probably should be more because $500,000 is still undervaluing someone who wins rookie of the year, but it is better than nothing for players there. When it comes to the service time manipulation rules, we saw that this is just creating incentives instead of getting rid of the entire service time system altogether, which there were enough issues going on in this collective bargaining. They didn't want to get rid of it altogether because there are benefits and there are some costs to the situation. So they just decided let's create incentives so that people are less willing to commit service time manipulation, which might work out, might not. I think it'll save some people, but like a star player, the caliber of Chris Bryant, maybe they still decide to manipulate service time because they value the one extra year of control more than the three draft picks or four draft picks or whatever they end up giving, which by the way, I actually like that that's the compromise that they came to is what if we just create incentives for owners and general managers to not commit service time manipulation? I think that that's a cool idea. The one that is really sticking in my head that I find really, really fascinating is the draft lottery because Major League Baseball really, really, really wants to do something about tanking. The NBA decided that a couple of years ago that they were going to change the odds in the draft lottery to make it so that teams at the top have a less chance of getting the number one pick, that the lottery becomes more random than it was in the past. I think it went from 25 14 and 10% for the top three picks to everyone getting 14% chances. Yeah, completely random unless Patrick Ewing is on the board. Well, see, this is the fun thing is that back then it was every team in the top seven has an equal chance of getting the number one pick. Now it's you still the worst teams have a better chance of getting the number one pick. But this is all just, again, a compromise and a negotiation. But the first year they implemented it, it led to Zion Williamson going to the Pelicans when in past years, the New York Knicks would have had a 25 percent chance of getting the number one pick. They got a 14 percent chance and they ended up missing out on Zion and Ja Morant. 
Durant because they only had a 42% chance of getting a top three pick when in the past it would have been 75%. Anyways, they really want to deal with tanking because in baseball, more than any other sport, tanking is really proven to be an effective strategy. Uh, Football, it works if you can get a generational talent at the top of the draft. If not, then you become like the Giants or the Jaguars or the Jets or the Lions or the Panthers or name any of the 10 teams that have been cycling through mediocrity for the past 15 years. it's really hard to tank in football too because the players, they know that they have the shortest career lifespan of any other athlete. So they have no incentive to tank. And we talked about guys like Adam Gase and the coaching staff. If you're a sitting duck, lame duck head coach, then there's no reason for you to tank because you know you're not going to see the fruits of your labor. Whereas baseball... You mentioned they have a little bit more longevity, the managers themselves. I mean, the managers aren't as much on the hot seat as NBA coaches or NFL coaches. Yes. And in the NBA and in the NFL, one player can change the course of your franchise overnight. And in the MLB, that's not exactly the case because when you get players there in the minor leagues for so long and one singular player can't have the same impact as a franchise quarterback or a star NBA player that scores 30 points a game. I've said for years, I can't explain why Mike Trout doesn't single-handedly make the Angels at least close to the playoffs. I can explain it afterwards, but I don't understand why it's not the case. So in baseball, the path to success is to have lots of players enter their prime at the same time. And if you can get them on rookie contracts, it makes it all the more competitive advantage because if you're the Astros, you can trade for Justin Verlander or you can trade for Garrett Cole or you can go sign Michael Brantley and that will help build a team because you have the core of Springer, Correa and Bregman all on rookie contracts at the same time. So in baseball, there's more incentive to tank. And we're seeing right now that, you know, six teams is usually what you would think would be tanking. But right now, within a week of labor peace, we now have two more teams that are tanking in baseball. Oakland just traded their entire team. In fact, we have breaking news right now. I don't know if you want to add the fun little news drop. Breaking news. Matt Chapman just got traded to the Toronto Blue Jays within the last hour or so. And the Blue Jays are trying to go trade for Jose Ramirez from Cleveland, who also traded Francisco Lindor at this time last year in their teardown of their organization. So Cleveland tore their team down. Oakland just tore their team down. And Cincinnati just traded Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez, who were their two most productive hitters last year, in the same trade to the Seattle Mariners to save. $40 million over the next two seasons. So tanking is very much a real thing in baseball. And it's the thing that almost helped single-handedly gift the Atlanta Braves a championship last year was they lost Ronald Acuna and they just built an entire new offense at the trading deadline. They traded for Adam Duvall. They traded for Jorge Soler. I think they added four different bats. Jock Peterson, uh, they got from the Cubs. They added four different bats in the starting lineup for that playoff series. And baseball is a sport where you're incentivized If you have no chance of getting into the playoffs, you're better off going to the bottom instead of staying in the middle. And so baseball really did want to do something about tanking because it is bad for their business model if half of the league is actively not trying to win at the same time. But that's just the system that baseball is. It's something that every sport has if you're going to incentivize that the worst teams get the best picks. You're going to have tanking no matter what. It's just making that incentive less so for teams to tank. It's kind of amazing that it took 
took owners, it took general managers that long to figure out that game premium draft picks was something that they could benefit from, especially in game prospects. I did also want to mention too, with this pre-arbitration pool, if you didn't happen to win one of those top awards, there is a system, there is a sliding scale where the top 100 players in war also get a piece of this $50 million arbitration pool. It's not just people that are coming down with some hardware. If you are consistently helping your team, but maybe you didn't get an MVP vote, maybe you didn't get Cy Young votes or consideration, then you still can at least benefit from this. So again, both sides are making a little bit more money. I'm with you. Anytime you can get rid of tanking, it's a huge win for the sport. I'm tired of seeing these crappy teams. You know, I like you mentioned, whenever the Giants face the A's this year, am I going to be excited to watch that game? Or am I going to be like, okay, by the maybe a couple innings and then I could just tune out here? Probably the latter. I would go the other way on that. It's fun when you're a good team and everyone else is tanking. Like it's fun for the Padres and Giants when everyone else is tanking. It's just less fun when you root for a tanking team because the team is going to be bad, not just the next year, but for the next three to four years. True. But if I'm making that decision to go to the ballpark, then I want to also evaluate who do I get to see? Like I'm talking about this year, going to see a Niners game with my dad. We're talking about going to see the Buccaneers Niners game. And I'm more excited to go see that game now that I know on the opposing sideline is Tom Brady. Absolutely. So if I have to go to an A's game or A's Giants game and see any of the double A scrubs that they're pulling up, I'm not going to be as enthused to buy that ticket. Might it be a cheaper ticket, which might benefit my friend here, Kyle Ledbetter, who likes to spend $5 on Sacramento Kings games? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. But I'm realizing myself, this is a me thing. I'm realizing that I'm just the one who doesn't care about tanking because I'm totally cool watching Christian Wood and the Detroit Pistons play against the shitty Sacramento Kings who chanted MVP for Rashawn Holmes. Less of a hit on his pocketbook. So that, that incentivizes him to go to more games. But um, I, I want to see good players, the best players, whenever I go to the game, whenever I go to a game at the ballpark. So I like to at least see the idea of a team trying. And who knows, maybe, maybe we misjudge on this because every now and then you'll come across a tanking team in baseball that suddenly is good <laughs> like watch. Seattle Mariners yeah Seattle no, Mariners did watch that next year as much as we're giving shit for the Oakland A's they're going to be one of those uh Miami Marlins from two years ago they're going to be the bottom feeder team that happens to make a run towards the playoffs because that's just sometimes what happens in baseball you can't explain it you can't rationalize it it just happens baseball is the most random sport that, that's one well, thing sometimes you also just true. miss your projections, right? Like the Marlins didn't expect to be that good. The Mariners didn't expect that they would be this good last year, especially if you told me that Kyle Lewis wasn't actually going to play oh, that well. Listen to the Giants. I mean, the Giants won 107 games last year. I was thinking of them more as I'm happy if they make it to the wild card. I feel like that's kind of the trajectory they're on. And then they go out and become the best team in the National League. It's hard to project. I mean, there's some really smart analytics people that are really going to be put through the ringer this season with the shifts going away, with uh, trying to evaluate DHs. Seeing how that works for the National League, I mean, we, we talked about it, but really seeing how it's going to work in signing DHs or seeing who's in your system to become your DH is going to be an interesting bit of strategy for National League teams, especially, like I said, if they're playing a lot more American League teams, the, the American League teams are going to have an obvious advantage because they plan for this ahead. They signed their DH. They knew who their DH was a year ago. I'm sure some National League teams were smart about it and also were thinking in the back of their mind, this might happen. So they might have signed a guy into their AAA system or someone that they thought ah, defensively, he's a scrub, but offensively, this guy's a big thumper. I'm sure we're going to see a few of those guys come up this year. 
uh, spring training, you know, pitchers and catchers report here in I think about a week. So we'll really see what's going on. We'll really see the scouting reports. Got to get some MLB power rankings soon, but I'm just happy it's over. I'm just happy we don't have to bitch at each other because it seems like the only time we talk baseball is when something universally bad is happening. Now that's or a once every happening. 50 year cheating scandal. Exactly. Anytime some drama is happening, that's the only time we talk baseball. But no, we get to talk baseball when something good is happening. It's good. It's fun. It's happening. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. Right at the MLB lockout, the MLB hot stove was sizzling, scorching. Now, post-lockout, it's back and started once again. This spring training will look a little bit different with free agency coinciding with it. Uh, Chris Bryant, seven-year, $182 million deal with the Rockies. Freddie Freeman, six-year, $162 million deal to sign with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Matt Olson is now brave, and Matt Chapman is now Blue Jay as part of the Oakland A's official rebuild. Also, Scott Boris' client, Carlos Correa, still remains remains unsigned but it's looking like he's on a trajectory to end up back in Houston Kyle what are your thoughts on some of the big name signings we've got this March well this March is a great sign there because we had baseball free agency overlapping with NFL free agency it was just chaos of transactions all over the place it was quite wonderful I thought Colorado was trying to tank I don't get it I don't get it (laughs) They're paying $150 million of Nolan Arenado's contract, and they're now paying Chris Bryant. I, I don't understand that and part. And not to mention their complete failure to trade Trevor Story at the deadline last year. Yeah, they were half in, half out. I think maybe it was just they didn't want to pay the Arenado contract. Like they kind of saw the writing on the wall with that one. Chris Bryant, I think, is a couple of years younger than Arenado. Does this mean MLB anti-tanking is already working? <sighs> No, because now two more teams are added to the list of tanking teams. Obviously, Cincinnati dumped uh, Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez, like we talked about in the last segment. And Oakland is the perfect example of how tanking is well and alive in baseball, because Oakland just took a team that in 2017 won 98 games. In 2018, won 97 games. 2019, they won 97. In 2020, they were on pace to win over 90 games and won the American League West. Obviously, I enjoyed having Chris Bryan as part of the Giants, and I think he was a big part of us making a nice little run in postseason. So I would have liked the Giants to have him back, but when you hear a number like seven-year, $182 million, and you see the decline in production from Chris Bryant's MVP year, it was just not worth it to me. And that's a big problem with in general whenever you see these six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year deals in baseball. Freddie Freeman to the Dodgers, though, I'm only worried about the first two years because we already know how good the Dodgers are and they're adding him to the middle of their lineup and it just is ridiculous it's like every time the Padres are in on someone the Dodgers say you know let me just slide into these DMs because that's exactly what happened with Freddie Freeman in my mind Oh, and then it also happened with Mookie Betts. And also Ken Rosenthal reported that we acquired Max Scherzer and then Max Scherzer and Trey Turner ended up on the Dodgers. You know, it's just, it's how this thing works, right? This is how all of this ends up making us look sad. Us being Padres fans and San Francisco Giants fans, of course. But the system is unfair. Baseball is designed to be unfair. Different teams have different amounts of income. They don't share revenue as a league. It is designed for the Dodgers to spend 
exorbitant amounts of money so that Freddie Freeman can make $30 million until he's 39 years old because Freddie Freeman didn't make any money on those first few years of his contract when he was playing for shitty tanking Atlanta Braves teams. And now he gets compensated by the Dodgers. Doesn't even matter if he's good or not. He doesn't even matter if he's a great player or not. They would prefer him to be a great player, but they can just slide Max Muncy over to first base if they need to. <laughs> so are we calling Freddie Freeman the new age Albert Pujols? Wins a World Series title with the team that he came up with and then dips to LA, waste away in his 30s? <laughs> That's a, that's such a uh, that's such an insult to Albert Pujols because that man might be the greatest right-handed hitter of all time. I feel like well, this we know how bad the Angels' years were. We know that those exist on Albert Pujols' resume as awesome of a player he is because I remember the Cardinals' years too. Yeah, Albert Pujols had the lowest offensive war in baseball in a single season and then still got four more years in Anaheim. That is a real stat that actually exists. Um, Compare this to Anthony Rendon. That's what I was thinking of. When Anthony Rendon won the World Series with the Nationals and then immediately dipped to Anaheim. Think of it like that. Anaheim fans have considered Rendon's tenure to not be super successful because the Angels didn't get any better after signing Anthony Rendon. But it's not Anthony Rendon's fault because Anthony Rendon finished third in war during the shortened 2020 season and was top 10 in war last season. So he's actually been really good for Anaheim. Freddie Freeman will still be a contributor for the Dodgers, even if he will never be able to meet the expectations of his contract. The Dodgers are obviously spending money, but similarly, we're seeing on the East Coast a lot of the money being spent by Steve Cohen and the New York Mets. After the lockout, Steve Cohen immediately goes out there and acquires another guy, Chris Bassett, coming over from Ace. Again, part of that teardown. This just coincides with their addition of Max Scherzer. So adding a rotation that now is DeGrom, Scherzer, and Chris Bassett. So a solid number three starter for them um, as they continue to try and get this thing going around. Uh, I know you had to talk about your boy, Fernando Tatis, getting in an injury the other day. Um, Pete Alonso also was involved in a major wreck not too long ago as well. So hopefully for the Mets, you know, as they try and make this team a legitimate World Series contender, he's healthy and back out there for them as well. But some big moves for them. The Yankees, obviously the bigger brother in New York, uh, added a couple new additions there as well, trading for former MVP Josh Donaldson. Uh, in that trade, they also get Isaiah Kiner Falefa and Ben Rortfit. Rortfit? <laughs> Uh, and the catcher. He's just they'll a catcher. be sending over uh, Gio Urshela as well as Gary Sanchez. Now, Gary Sanchez, uh, a couple years ago, we thought he was going to be the next great offensive catcher in baseball, and it just never really panned out for him. They've had a couple of guys like this. Uh, you know, to talk about Gary Sanchez, you know, looking like a 20-30 home run guy, and then Glaber Torres thought they were going to have their shortstop of the future, and that hasn't really panned out. Uh, so the Yankees are now going out there and trying to spend some money again, uh, reacquiring Anthony Rizzo. Uh, Rizzo didn't have a great year in New York last year after the acquisition from the Cubs. Uh, Was okay. Had his moments. Had a couple big home runs for them. Uh, Homered in his first game as all the former Cubs did last year after getting traded at the deadline. But since then was pretty quiet. Similarly, Joey Gallo, another acquisition by them. So it'll be curious to see how Rizzo uh, maintains that first base. This means they're probably going to have other trades coming out as uh, Luke Voigt probably doesn't make sense anymore on their roster. Uh, What do you think about the Yankees and Mets did? 
did. So the the Mets part is kind of interesting because similar to the Angels, I'm like, I assume the Mets are going to work out. I don't understand why it wouldn't work out, but the Mets will be kind of in a similar place as last year where they're like right there with the Atlanta Braves, I feel like, unless some of those players on the team make significant leaps. Uh, I think the Mets should be really, really good next year, assuming DeGrom is healthy, assuming Pete Alonso is okay because he, his car flipped over three times in a freakish accident. Uh, Scary, man. Um, you know, so assuming those pieces, I mean, assuming those pieces end up working out, they should be a fine team. The Yankees part is interesting because this is a masterclass of how do you live with the mistakes of past decisions? And you mentioned David Sampson and something he said last week that I've, I've known him for a little while mentioning it on the Levitard show, which is when you have lots of money, when you're a big market team in baseball, you can make mistakes and get away with it. I'll never forget that in 2018, when the Red Sox won that World Series with one of the best teams ever. They just straight cut Hanley Ramirez. Like, we're just going to cut $28 million. We're going to absorb it and just tell him to go home. And I think the Yankees are living with some of those mistakes right now. Gio Urshela, I love Gio Urshela because Gio Urshela was a backup third baseman for the formerly Cleveland Indians who was basically just cut, picked up on a minor league deal by the Yankees. They they did the money ball thing where they retooled his swing, kind of like the Dodgers did with Justin Turner and Max Muncy, where they signed them to minor league deals and then they turned into 35 home run guys. The Yankees did that with Urshela and then were able to take that minor league signing and then flip it into Josh Donaldson, who's still one of the best third basemen in all of baseball. Fun story with Josh Donaldson, though, and it's going to be interesting look in that locker room. Obviously, Donaldson was one of the biggest proponents against sticky stuff last year, even having a few confrontations with some Chicago White Sox players. So him being in the same locker room as Garrett Cole is definitely going to be a story to monitor <laughs> um, as Garrett Cole was the one that took the most lumps out of that whole situation. I think if there was a poster child for spider tack, it was Garrett Cole last year. So I wonder if Josh Donaldson and him have already made their amends. Yeah, I'm sure this will be something fascinating to follow there. By the way, you mentioned Glaber Torres not working out the way the Yankees had entirely hoped. I know he's been an all-star before, but if they want to have a backup plan, this is like they they did the equivalent of like signing Teddy Bridgewater as your backup, which is trading for Isaiah Kiner Falefa, which is he's a fine player. He's yeah. he was a two-hitter for the for the Texas Rangers last what, year. What Yankees personnel keeps saying is that they got defensively better, which was a big weakness for the Yankees. Yankees. Offensively, they may take a hit trading away a guy like Sanchez for a guy like a Rorvet, but they do get better <laughs> defensively. You know, they're going to do more of a platoon at catcher moving forward, which if you're a more fundamentally based baseball team, that's not a bad thing to be either. You know, um, it, it's nice to have the flashy stars, but sometimes it doesn't hurt to just go back to fundamentals from time to time. Kyle Higashioka should be their full-time starter now. And any chance I get to say Kyle Higashioka, I will take the chance to say it also uh, because it's one of the best names that exists in baseball right now. So the Giants were actually active too. Uh, we picked up Carlos Rodon early on this free agency. So that helps replace Kevin Gossman in the rotation, which I'm happy with because Alex Cobb, I didn't really think he was going to be a full replacement for him. I know they're both pitchers that rely on a great splitter, but they're not exactly one-to-one-A comparisons. Again, losing Chris Bryant, that is 
that is going to be a hole in their batting order that they're going to have to fill. But they did get Jock Peterson, which was a big addition for the Atlanta Braves on their World Series run, not to completely skate over it, but they did get Matt Olson. So that at least replaces Freddie Freeman in the lineup. The big part of that is losing Freddie Freeman's leadership, obviously, in Atlanta. He was a big part of, as you mentioned, a rebuild that eventually ended in this World Series, them being a perennial playoff team. Now they're one of the better run front offices in baseball. So Matt Olson, do you think he could just easily slide into that spot to make the Braves, once again, I guess, World Series contenders? Well, last year, I didn't think the Braves were anywhere close to World Series contenders because I didn't believe that a team that rebuilt their entire offense basically from scratch at the trade deadline could win a World Series. They get a Cunha back this year. He, uh, according to his swings at spring training, is back. Yes. Check out that video. Slump Buster YouTube. Make sure to subscribe. I think that the Braves are still the best team in the National League East because as much as losing Freddie Freeman sucks, it's not like the end of the world. Like I talked about with Tatis, no one player signifies the end of the world. Now, if you're the Giants and you lose Buster Posey and Chris Bryant and Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt both had ridiculous career revival seasons that will probably come back down to earth or Evan Longoria looks like he's 27 again. Again, when he's 35, probably not going to get the same yeah, luck. He was a little hurt and he sucked in the postseason. Love you, Evan, but your end of the season run there was horrendous to watch. I think he had like a one for 30 slump. And obviously we, we love busting the slump. So hopefully you do it again here in 2022 because, uh, yeah, we kind of need that. Uh, it's not easy to repeat a 107 win season. Last year, they were a surprise. There was a couple things that, you know, happened before this lockout, too, that we should do a little bit of callback to. So the Rangers were spending money going out there again, Corey <laughs> Seager. Uh, that's right. I forgot yeah, about that. <laughs> Marcus Simeon. So they, they added some big bats. So I kind of wonder how that's going to change that complexion of the AL West as the A's are getting worse. The Angels are one of the big mysteries. We talked about how Mike Trout doesn't really change the composition of them as a playoff team. The Astros, again, we'll see what happens with Correa, right? You know, Correa is one of their big bats, but in general, the Astros are one of the best run organizations in baseball, you know, cheating the scandals aside. They do a good job of just constantly uh, bringing in guys that help them in one way or the other. You know, they do a great job in player evaluation. Not a guarantee that they're just going to walk away with that, especially because the Mariners are actually making an effort to really compete this year in that division. In the AL West, how do you see that one shaking up? So Texas will be better than Oakland. They will be better than no one else in that division. Uh, Houston will win the division because Houston will always win that division. Uh, Houston, you mentioned like one of the best run organizations in baseball. Houston has had the greatest run of success in baseball since the 1990s. What is it? Five ALCSs in a row? Five ALCSs in a row, three World Series appearances, one World Series championship. And the Houston Astros, that is in baseball qualifies as the, you know, non-Giants category, greatest run of success since the 90s. You would have liked to see one more World Series in there just given the fact that they were the favorites in both the Nationals and Braves series. Yeah, I mean, the Nationals won. They were the, the, uh, I believe it was the seventh greatest offense in the history of Major League Baseball. Like they were battling like 1940s Yankees teams in terms of most efficient offense in the history of baseball. And had three amazing starters. It's just, you know, luck, chance, whatever you want to call it, that they lost to, to the Nationals because baseball's random. I would also say some postseason slumps that cost them against the Braves. I mean, Carlos Correa, as great as we talk about him, he was bad in that series. Uh, mm-hmm. Altuve kind of had too. a down series. Bregman had an awful series. 
the Braves were right place, right time. Their rotation, we talked about it too. The, the Braves rotation was probably the best rotation that the Astros had faced going into that World Series. And ultimately it did prove to be their demise. And their makeshift offense was way better than I thought. Like Jock Peterson was a huge contributor in the CS, Eddie Rosario, uh, Jorge Soler won World Series MVP. Like it didn't make any sense there. The team that I found funny, and now it's just laughable at this point, is the Angels. Because you mentioned Mike Trout and how like Mike Trout was never enough to get the Angels over the hump because they were a poorly run franchise who never developed talent, never had enough starting pitching, never had enough young people, and every now and then would give out a bad contract. They have the next generation's generational talent on their team also, and they still can't make the playoffs. Like now they just go right from Mike Trout to Shohei Otani, and they still can't make it to the playoffs. It's the most ridiculous thing that has ever existed in baseball, that now it's not just one generational star, it's two goddamn generations in a row, and they still can't get close to the playoffs, even though I do think they have a chance to make the playoffs because not every American League East team can make it to the playoffs this year, even if you expand it to 12 teams. Although you can make a case for all of them. I mean, the Red Sox will probably be good. The Yankees will probably be good. The Rays will probably be good. The Blue Jays are looking like they'll be good. And then there's the Orioles. <laughs> yeah, Orioles. Fun fun time to be the Baltimore Orioles, which if the Tigers didn't exist, would be the worst run franchise in all of professional baseball over the last 10 years. Okay, over the last 10 years. I was going to say because uh, they, they were pretty good at the start of the 2010s. They were pretty yes, good then. So they, um, Walter years. And then uh, they offered Chris Davis that ridiculous contract that is haunting them to this day. No, I disagree. It was the uh, decision to leave Ubaldo Jimenez in a wild card game instead of going to Zach Britton and Edwin Encarnacion launching a 450 foot walk off homer for the Blue Jays. And the franchise has just never recovered since. I think that was like 2015 or 2016, but they've just never recovered since they left Jimenez in instead of going to Zach Britton. I tell you, Ubaldo Jimenez, that is a name of a player that fell from grace so hard. We were talking about about a guy that could have won the Cy Young and then just tanked the rest. He did of it in career. Colorado too. Like that was the weirdest part is he did it in Colorado. I remember, uh, God, I have so many weird Ubaldo Jimenez memories, but he was playing was the Padres and he was starting the game. He got traded on. He got traded mid game against the Padres. They pulled him out in like the third inning and he got traded from the Rockies mid game. Well, given the, some of these teams they're rebuilding, bringing up double A guys, who knows? Ubaldo Jimenez might end up on the A's or Pirates by the end of the season. <laughs> yeah, or maybe he'll good. end up pitching for the Yankees deep into the playoffs because, uh, as, as I've been saying for many, many years, the Yankees have just been desperately trying to find a third starter for five years. And really, it's more 20 years, but it's always they have two good pitchers. They can never get a third one. Sometimes it's Tanaka. Sometimes it's Sabathia. Sometimes it's James Paxton. Sometimes it's Jamison Tayon. Sometimes it's Corey Kluber. Sometimes it's Luis Severino. They just can never ever find a third starter and every year at the trade deadline the Yankees always need to trade for a third starting pitcher none of them ever I made comments earlier during this podcast that definitely went out over air if I have hurt anyone out there please suck it up I pride myself and think of myself as a man of faith and there's a drive into Philadelphia by Castellanos that'll be a new contract and so it'll be a five-year deal I know I'm going to be putting on this headset again I know it'll be for the slump buster 
Castellanos memes aside, Kyle, Nick Castellanos is now a Philadelphia Philly. Trevor Story is the big story in Boston. And Carlos Correa is going to be taking the trash can up to the Twin Cities. What move from this week will pay the biggest dividends, Mr. Ledbetter? I really, really hope that people understood that joke because it was really, really nuanced and really, really baseball, but really, really good. And there's a deep drive to left field by Castellanos. (sighs) Do any of those moves, I guess Trevor's story goes to a contender, but I don't think of Philadelphia as a contender at this point. And I don't know if Castellanos like moves the needle for them in that way. Although good for him for getting a hundred million dollars. From what a lot of people are saying, mostly when you think about the Phillies is their offense is going to be designed to put up 10 to 15 runs. But the problem is they don't have a pitching staff that's going to keep that run total below that 10 to 15 run threshold. So they're going to be in a lot of shootouts this year. They're going to be in a lot of back and forth games. They're trying to just outscore every opponent. And while I like the strategy, while like a dynamic offense in baseball, the death line after they're building out there, we haven't seen a lot of success with that really working out. At least in my history, at least in my lifetime, I have not seen a lot of teams go for that strategy. And it, it just seems a little bit inorganic in the same way you look at the Dodgers and their lineup. And while their lineup is truly a death lineup it's all homegrown Phillies are doing it in a much different way and I I just kind of don't like it I mean again Castellanos fine piece we're talking about a guy that finished 12th in MVP voting we're talking about a guy that was an all-star a silver slugger but you're right I I don't know if this is necessarily the move they also added Kyle Schwarber this year too so that that's another piece that the Phillies are doing they're they're trying to build a good lineup this year that was the thing I was about to say like yeah they're trying to do a death lineup but like is the lineup actually that good like I'm, I'm trying to go through it in my head like so obviously they have Gene Segura, they have Castellanos, they've got Schwarber, they've got Bryce Harper, who was obviously the MVP, but we know Bryce Harper goes fluctuates a lot in between seasons, but you know, maybe, maybe they'll get the best of the best Bryce Harper. And I guess Real Muto is still there. So I guess that's pretty good. Didi Gregorius will be a DH unless, you know, Schwarber's a DH. Again, the problem is start listing off their pitching staff. It's not good, man. I mean, I mean Aaron Nola is pretty good, but you're right. Like it's, oh God, Kyle Gibbs. Oh God. <laughs> Oh, it's bad. Oh, no. Kyle Gibson is their number two. That's terrible. It's not just there. It's not just that they have a bad pitching staff. They also have a bad defensive lineup. Well, all these guys can hit. They're not great filters. (laughs) No, that's why that's going to be a DH. But, you know, like even got the best of them, like Bryce Harper uh, is kind of declined in terms of his fielding in recent years. Gene Segura is not much of a defensive uh, shortstop either. That's why I was saying, like, the Phillies don't feel like a contender. Like the original question was, which of these is the most, I guess, story to Boston matters a lot. Like, I guess that's a big deal move because Boston did really need to get a shortstop slash second baseman to fill in there. So I guess that one does actually make a pretty big difference. I know Story's probably going to play second base because Xander Bogarts, but I I guess that one makes a a bit of a difference. Correa is so strange. Yeah, Correa. That that one I think is the most interesting from the standpoint of the Twins. The Twins, I didn't think were really trying to do much this year. And they got Gary Sanchez. uh, So their offense, they're, they're trying to build a bit of an offense together themselves. They're not building quite the death lineup that the Phillies are building, but they're trying to build a nice little offensive unit that again also suffers defensively. And the Twins at least benefit from being in a wide open AL Central. Yes, I think the, the division Sox- that I wish to disband. Yeah. Yes. yes, the White Sox, I think are still my favorites, but the Twins, you get a guy like Correa, you get a guy like Sanchez. I, I think they've also made a couple smaller acquisitions before and after the MLB lockout. They're going to try and compete to win their division. Obviously, we get expanded playoffs this year. If you told me the Twins were a fringe playoff team, one of those surprise stories this year, I'd believe you. I think that they're making the moves to be that. Uh, Trevor Story, I will add on to what
what you're saying though. What I'm going to be most intrigued with with Trevor Story is he's one of those Colorado guys, right? He's one of those guys that has home road splits. In fact, his home and away numbers, he is a 300 hitter at course. Away from course, he's a 241 hitter. His slugging percentage, almost 150 points below average when you consider his home road splits. And I will concede that the AL East does have some hitter friendly ballparks, but you're not going to find anything as good as hitting at course. At least, you know, if you're talking advanced metrics, his Babbitt, so his batting average of balls in play, he is a 300 hitter in both categories. So maybe that's going to be more predictive of success. It just, you know, we kind of talk about this anytime you talk about a guy leaving Colorado, is he going to be closer to Arenado or is he going to be closer to Troy Tulwitzki? Where is he going to fall in that? Well, yeah, but it's better than like Christian Arroyo, who I think is their starter at this point. So like that was kind of the big thing was like they had a huge need at second base. Sorry, Kike. I know Kike is kind of a utility guy, yeah, but yeah, they, well, okay. they, one of the big parts of their playoff run was offense, right? They were offensive driven team. Uh, in fact, when the Astros went against them, their back end of their rotation was never going to stop the Astros lineup. And it didn't. And the only reason the Astros ended up losing the World Series last year, and that also goes into Carlos Correa, I think he slumped in the World Series last year. But the Astros faced their best pitching staff in the Atlanta Braves. The Boston Red Sox weren't that. And the Boston Red Sox came out of nowhere in the playoffs. Have they fixed their needs? Is Trevor Story really the difference between them being a team that slipped into the playoffs and made a run to the ALCS and a team that back to competing for a World Series out of the AL? Well, well, no, but one player can't do like Mike Trout can't change that for any single team. So like, it's just better than I guess the alternative for Boston, which is, you know, they, they were going to kind of have that little bottom of the order interchangeable piece between Kike and, you know, maybe Bobby Dahlbeck who had those, that one amazing month and then like kind of fell out of the, the lineup at the end. So I don't know, like Boston's kind of in this weird place that way. The twins one is funny. And I did want to talk about that here, which is Minnesota decided that we aren't good enough to win a world series, but we also don't want to tear it down and start all over again. And that's probably a good idea because as bad as Minnesota was last year, like the AL central is just putrid like Kansas City's waiting for all the the prospects to come up the Tigers are getting better presumably at this point and Cleveland is now in the crapper trying to tank for the top pick so I understand that point from Minnesota which is we can get to the playoffs just by trying in Major League Baseball you're already like the eighth best team in your league like just by actually giving a shit you already become the eighth best team in your league because the Rangers are gonna I know the Rangers are trying to win but they're not gonna be good enough. Seattle's not going to, I'm sorry, Oakland's not going to try and win. Seattle's now trying to win. I'm just so used to saying Seattle's not trying to win, but Oakland's going to stink. Texas is going to stink. The Tigers are still going to stink. Even though they're going to be better, they're still going to stink. The Royals are going to stink. Cleveland is going to stink and uh, Baltimore is going to stink. Yeah. I mean, it gets you into the conversation, which baseball can be weird sometimes. Like if you catch a hot streak, you can turn something around and Gary Sanchez makes you a better team. And Giovanni Urshela is worse than Don Donaldson, but not by much like Giovanni Urshela was really good in those few years with the Yankees and they re-signed Byron Buxton. They tried to trade him at the deadline. Then they decided to give him an extension. So I think that was kind of the turning point for the twins was when they couldn't get what they wanted for Buxton. That's when they kind of pivoted and said, we're going to try and do really, really well at this point, even though they traded Jose Barrios at the deadline last year, but that was just because he was going to be a free agent at the end of the year. They went out there and acquired Sonny Gray. That was another move that I noticed from their free agent tracker. 
and Sonny Gray, he's such an interesting pitcher. Every time I think he's done and ready to be out of the league, he comes back and has a practically all-star season. So I, I never completely downplay Sonny Gray. He still has some stuff. He still has obviously some talent to keep around. But then you look at other guys on there, you know, guys like Dylan Bundy. I, I don't know. Again, you're right. They're probably just happy to be in the middle. If they win the AL Central, cool. And if you're a fan and you get to sell some tickets off Carlos Correa jerseys and Carlos Correa being your new shortstop, that's fine. A, a big thing about Carlos Correa getting this contract, which is interesting, a three-year deal, $105 million, so short-term contract. And Carlos Correa is good. I think Carlos Correa is good. And I think he's one of my favorite players that's never been a San Francisco Giant, even though, damn it, Carlos, you should have been. You should have been a San Francisco Giant this year, but no, they there. got Brandon Crawford, 36 yes. year old Brandon hey, whoa, Crawford. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Second base, people move around. You talk about Trevor Story moving positions. He could have been our second baseman. That's fine. That's fine. Carlos Correa is going to be second base over Brandon Crawford. Get no, out of here. No. Brandon Crawford's our shortstop. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say Brandon Crawford's our shortstop. Carlos Correa to second. I could have lived. Well, no, with Brandon Crawford's moving to second base no, in that situation. No, no. <laughs> it's Carlos Crawford. Correa. Brandon Crawford is a magician. He is sensational and have you seen that long hair flowing in the wind when he goes on a dive it's like a gazelle just going through the safari i don't understand how any of that happened last year i've said it so many times i don't understand how brandon crawford and brandon belt who have been giants since i was born in 2001 somehow just miraculously at 58 and 52 years old miraculously turned their career mvp mvp MVP. Throw Longo in the mix too. That didn't make any sense either. Okay. But anyways, to, to, yo, Car- yo, Longo, he should be long gone. Carlos, Carlos Correa. Correa. So, yes. To the Finishing point, like, the point here. One one thing that concerns me and should concern the Twins. Carlos Correa in three of the last four non sixty game seasons has missed over fifty games. So he's not exactly a model of health. So the fact that he didn't go for a more long term contract is interesting for him. I wonder if anyone was offering him that six year to ten year deal and why Scott Boris decided to settle on this three-year contract. I know there's opt-outs. I know there's some weird inner workings. The fact that your player, your representative doesn't have a clean bill of health on a year-to-year basis. Those are usually the guys that seek the more long-term deals. Those are the guys that usually are happy to still get paid $30 million a year in their age 38 season while also missing the majority of games. And the fact that Carlos Correa settled on a somewhat bet on yourself three-year deal surprised me. Well, so this is the effects of the MLB's salary cap. And I put salary cap in air quotes because it's a competitive balance luxury tax that essentially acts as a salary cap is that the teams that spent on free agents were teams 10 through 20 this year. In baseball, it's more like teams 8 to 16 because half the teams in baseball are tanking. But, you know, teams 10 to 20 were the ones who spent on free agents because the Yankees were out of the game. Well, the Red Sox were out of the game until they got Trevor Story, but the Cubs were essentially out of the game. The Nationals were out of the game in free agents. Uh, The Padres were out of the game in free agents, which it's weird to talk about the Padres as a big market team now, but it makes me feel good to say it. The Giants were out on Chris Bryant, even though Chris Bryant signed for like $30 million a year or something like that. And that too, that too, tying Chris Bryant into Carlos Correa, two Scott Boris clients that signed with teams that we don't think as contenders. I I thought both those guys would be more in trying to build out their legacy and their latter half of their career, but kind of, I feel settled for these mid-tier teams that I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel for the Twins or Rockies. Well, yeah, but this is about getting them to competitive. Like, so I think this is more long-term for the Twins. Cause like, if I say the name Royce Lewis, do you know who I'm talking about? 
I can see if Google knows who you're talking about. Oh, darn. Well, that that defeats my point. But Royce Lewis is like a name that Twins fans know because he was the number one pick in the draft in 2017. And he's like been coming up slowly but steadily, but he's a top 30 prospect instead of a top prospect as the number one pick in the draft. But like they went through this process already. They went through the process of tearing it to the ground. They went through the process of being terrible. And so fans are going to invest in the players that are there and invest in the storylines. And yeah, maybe that'll get them a missed playoffs spot this year, but they're hoping that if Royce Lewis comes up through the system or if Gregory Polanco becomes the player they were hoping for him to be, or Luis Arias turns into something, or Max Kepler becomes a perennial all-star, like they're hoping that that will then put them over the edge. All they're doing now is creating the supporting cast the same way Toronto did last offseason when they signed George Springer. I know the parallels of Springer and Correa are such, but it, it feels like they're following where Toronto was, which is we're about two years years away like we're waiting for the White Sox to kind of hit the clapper a little bit but we're like two years away and so now we're like supplementing our team now for a push in 2023 which the alternative was they could have torn it all to the ground and tried again but they're saying like we're gonna play the two-year game of just trying to get into the playoffs and maybe at that 2023 deadline we can trade for a bunch of people and we can try and make a push for the World Series because baseball playoffs are random Uh, this seems to be kind of the place that they're in right now, which is we don't have the money to compete with these teams, but we have just enough good players to get in the mix. It's not like they're a hundred percent good to go. Like, like we said, they're probably like the sixth or seventh best team in the American league, but they're at least setting themselves up to try and go after a pretty shitty AL central title. And that'll be easier for fans to invest in. Cause at least it's going to be the same team for the next three years. Like at least it's still going to be the names they know and the names they've been rooting for, for the last couple of years, it's still going to be Buxton still going to be Polanco, still going to be Miguel Sano, still going to be those guys, even if they kind of had to like retool a little bit over the last couple of years, even if it ends with the twins getting swept in the first round, like they always do, at least they're trying to get back there instead of saying, let's wait six years to get swept in the first round. Let's try and get swept in the first round right now. Like anytime the twins make it to the postseason, it comes down to, are we going to have to head to New York? Are we going to... March is one of the greatest times of year to be a basketball fan, but even non-fans get in on the madness. How hard is it to fill out a perfect bracket? According to the NCAA, one in 9.2 quintillion chances. If you know a little bit about basketball, that improves to a chance of one in 120 billion. Obviously, with odds that low, no one has ever completed a perfect bracket. Greg Nigel set a record for predicting the first 49 games correctly in 2019, losing his streak in an overtime Sweet 16 upset by Purdue. Things more likely than predicting a perfect bracket include winning an Oscar, 1 in 10,000, being crushed by a meteorite, 1 in 700,000, a roulette wheel landing on the same number seven straight times, 1 in 3 billion. Warren Buffett offers a billion dollars every year for those that can complete a perfect bracket. Warren, you probably better serve using that money for meteor insurance. The Slump Buster Podcast. The Slump Buster Podcast. The first quarter starts now. The quarterback carousel continues to spin this offseason. Matt Ryan was traded to the Colts on Monday for a third round pick. Ryan has played his entire career in Atlanta since being drafted in 2008. He won an MVP with the team in 2016, led Atlanta to its second ever Super Bowl appearance. Indianapolis will have their seventh quarterback in seven years with Matt Ryan, their seventh week one starting quarterback, a trend that started with the surprise retirement of Andrew Luck in 2019. Kyle, you often refer to Matt Ryan as a rotting corpse. Will the 
move to Indianapolis, do that body some good. The rotting corpse of Matt Ryan. Thank you for bringing that up. I love saying it every time we bring it up. The rotting corpse of Matt Ryan. It's kind of like zombified now. Now he's kind of like a football zombie, I would say. I would say that he is one hit away from being Ben Roethlisberger. And fortunately, he's going to a team that has some measure of an offensive line. So he will avoid that hit for as long as he possibly can. Because it's just one. It's just one away from being Ben Roethlisberger. Ben Roethlisberger injured his elbow and was never the same. Matt Ryan's like that one knee or arm injury away from never being the same. And fortunately, the Colts can milk one year out of him before they inevitably need to find another quarterback next year. Now, technically, Matt Ryan's under contract for two seasons at a roughly 28 and $21 million cap hit. But if the Colts so choose, they can move off of Matt Ryan next year with very minimal penalty. And uh, I'm very fascinated from the Colts standpoint of it, but from the Matt Ryan standpoint, standpoint he got to pick the place he wanted to go and he picked a pretty good place to ride out the last couple of years of his career it's kind of like Matthew Stafford deciding he wanted to go play in LA not as shiny as the glitz and glamour of Los Angeles obviously but Matt Ryan going to Indianapolis is certainly a team in which he has a chance to compete now the one thing I will push back on and doing a little bit of research into the Indianapolis Colts and what this would mean for Matt Ryan PFF actually had the Colts as a mid-level offensive line so they were graded 12 overall but did you know that PFF had them as the 30th graded pass blocking offensive line. They actually allowed the most quarterback hits in 2021. Now I will grant you that Quinn and Nelson missed four games last year, but that still is such a striking mark of a team that we kind of view as again, one of the solid offensive lines. You don't even think about them getting hit. I've heard this theory thrown out there that Carson Wentz makes offensive lines worse. The Philadelphia Eagles also had a pretty damn good offensive line, but those last couple years of Carson Wentz, you start to notice, Oh, this offensive line might not be as good as we thought. Now, Jalen Hurts is there and you're like, okay, maybe the Philadelphia Eagles do have a good offensive line again. The Colts, could that be another similar story? Like Matt Ryan, who's more of a timing pocket passer, not going to ad lib as much. Is he going to make sure that that offensive line produces at a better clip this season? So I'm glad that you brought up QB hits and QB pressures as stats for sure, because Carson Wentz falls into the same camp as Russell Wilson in that QB hits and QB sacks are not offensive line stats. They are quarterback stats. You can throw the ball away as a quarterback. If you take sacks, it's on the quarterback. It's not on the offensive line. It's on the quarterback. Russell Wilson like led the league in sacks like every year, and that's on the quarterback. It's the same thing with Joe Burrow where Joe Burrow takes a lot of sacks. His offensive line wasn't great, but he also holds onto the ball too long and he gets sacked and hit a lot. Now he has less time than other quarterbacks as well, but that's besides the point there. Carson Wentz does make your offensive line worse. I'm not sure if it's 30th in pass blocking, but I guess when we say the Colts have a strong offensive line, it's the Colts have Quentin Nelson and Quentin Nelson could retire tomorrow and have a first ballot Hall of Fame resume. Like he's been in the league four years no. and has made all pro no. three times. Well, go like, First team all pro three times. He's not getting Sandy Koufax treatment. He's not at Luke Keekly levels yet. Three first team all pros. Like Richard Seymour just got in the Hall of Fame with two. But Luke (laughs) Keekly was was good too. And Luke Keekly, he at least had an eight year career. Four year career, you still have some work to do. I'm sorry. There's sure. Okay. He he can just he has to hit the bare minimum threshold to make it. Like okay, he plays six years, he'll make the Hall of Fame. He could do nothing the rest of his career. If it takes you five years post retirement to get get into the hall of fame i think you have to at least play let's say five years not that it's a set standard but i think that that is a 
reasonable okay. measure. But we're not here to talk about Quinn and Nelson and his Hall of Fame resume. We're here to talk about Matt Ryan and how this helps the Colts. Uh, the division, you look around them. I know you don't think much of Tennessee. Tennessee had some movement this offseason. They let go of Julio Jones, which Julio was just never a big move for them. Julio was, was a big move in principle. Last season, I remember talking to our friend Steezy about it, and it, he called it the pick your poison offense, and it just never materialized. It looks like the Titans were drinking some poison because they were one of the most injured teams on offense last year. Insert Robert Woods. Will that make the offense better? Well, it's really going to depend on if Ryan Tannehill makes any level of improvement. Look at the Jags. Doug Peterson's first year there. He's still improving. He has to fix this team or undo whatever mess that they've filled that Urban Meyer left over for him. And then Houston is a team in an interesting spot. Now they have some draft picks to work with tanking. because of the Deshaun Watson trade. I don't think they're quite tanking anymore. I think tanking was really last year. I think now they're going to try and build off it. I don't underrate Lovey Smith as much as you do. I, I still look at him as a coach that brought a Chicago Bears team to a Super Bowl and is at least a professional guy. I, I think you might see some improvement there. The question for them is always just going to be like Davis Mills. What are they going to get out of him? Uh, Davis Mills, there's some believers, there's some doubters. The answer probably lies somewhere in between on where Davis's ability is going to become. I can look at the Colts though. I can look at the Colts and say last year, they should have been in the playoffs. I can't believe they were not in the playoffs. I can't believe they lost a week 18 game against the Jacksonville Jaguars to miss the playoffs. I was praising Carson Wentz, 27 touchdowns, seven interceptions. I thought he was having a great year, but even when you just look at those base numbers, the eye test would tell you, Carson Wentz, he just crumbles. He crumbles in these big moments. He has those left-handed spinning alley-oop throws that end up in the other person's arm for a pick six. And that's part of the problem with Carson Wentz. Matt Ryan isn't going to do that. Matt Ryan isn't that type of quarterback. Matt Ryan, while he's not flashy anymore, he's never had the biggest arm. He is a former league MVP for a reason. And that is because Matt Ryan can do what you ask him to do. One thing that has hurt Matt Ryan immensely the last couple of years in Atlanta, the fact that Atlanta has just not had a running game since 2016, his MVP year. <laughs> I would, I would go a little further. I would just say Atlanta has not had talent since well, his MVP season. That's part of it. That's part of the fact that they haven't had talent. They haven't had talent at the running back position. Devontae Freeman started to flatline after that season. Uh, Tevin Coleman wasn't the, quite the same guy. Oh, uh, yes. And then Tevin they never Coleman picked... missed their 18 carries yeah, and for And then they never yards. really picked up a running game beyond that. In fact, the Atlanta run game uh, has been horrible. They have been bottom half since 2017. In the last couple of seasons, they've been bottom five. And we talked about this a little bit off air. A good running game doesn't necessarily make you a good team, but it does hide any blemishes that your quarterback may have, any limitations that your quarterback may have. If you could just hide some of the blemishes of Matt Ryan at this point in his career, he's going to do enough to help you win ballgames. He's going to make one to two throws a game that are going to increase your odds of winning. And the Colts have that team. They just needed the right man at the ship, at least for two years. It's fine. You're acquiring another old guy. That's the big problem. You're acquiring another old guy. So even in best case scenario, how many years left can Matt Ryan give you? How many good years left can Matt Ryan give you? The Colts still have to almost look for a future quarterback, even while acquiring Matt Ryan. Okay. So in those four minutes that you broke down there, there was a lot of good stuff in there. So there's like three points that I'm trying to keep in my head to circle back to, because they were very good. Thanks, so man. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. So the first thing was the Titans and the Titans was interesting because I don't, I'm not necessarily down on the Titans. I think the Titans are so dependent on the success of Derrick Henry. And like the bet would be a mid twenties running back coming off of a major leg injury when he's had like 400 carries the last two seasons. Like the bet is to say the Titans are going to get worse. Now, Derrick Henry is like the super freak of super freak running backs and 
and he has defied all the rules of the running back position. So like it's possible that it works out, but it's just not as good of a bet as saying the Chiefs, Chargers, Broncos, Raiders, unfortunately, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Buffalo, and now Miami have all also gotten better as well. You know, last year they were the sixth best team in the AFC. And so I assume some of those teams will jump the Tennessee Titans. This division feels like the most easy to pick like non-NFC East or NFC South. Like it seems like Colts, Titans, Jaguars, Texans is how this thing is stacked up because rare is the division where one team is in like each category of NFL teams. Like there's the Super Bowl contenders, there's the above average teams, there's the below average teams, and then there's the tanking teams. And I'm not saying the Colts are like Super Bowl contender good, but we both kind of agree. Like we could have seen the Colts doing what the Bengals did last year. Like the Colts were as good as them. Oh, oh yeah. You know, and I never even got to expand on this take. I wanted to bring this up last season, but obviously the Colts blew their last two games. If they made it in the playoffs, I would have picked them almost as a dark horse Super Bowl team. Not saying it would have happened, but I could have saw them as dark horse, as much of a dark horse as the Cincinnati Bengals were. But because of the last two weeks, what, what, what can I do? Yeah, it, it all it fell apart there. But th- this one feels pretty clear because it feels like each one is in a different tier. Like the Titans are now like ninth or 10th best team in the AFC. Jaguars are going to go six and 11. Like they signing those players makes them better. It just doesn't make them good enough to actually compete because mid-level free agents are not enough to make you a competitive football team. And then the Texans are going for the number one pick. I don't care if what the organization wants to do. They're so bad that they're going to have a top four pick in the draft. I'm not sure if it's going to be number one, but they're so bad that they're going to have a top four pick in the NFL draft for Bryce blow for Bryce suck for Stroud, whatever you want to do it. I like when it's B and S because those are easy ones to do or lose for Lawrence, little situations like that. But that part was interesting. The other part that was interesting that you mentioned many, many times back, I'm trying to circle back to is Matt Ryan does throw interceptions at a pretty high rate. It's just, he doesn't have the volatility of a Carson Wentz. Like the joke with Matt Ryan is that he underthrows everybody. And as much as we don't admit it, the Colts don't have a great wide receiver core. I know people like Michael Pittman. I know he was a fantasy hero for me, but the Colts so, don't have a, big a good body. receiving core. He's a big body, you know, and he's more of a red zone threat than Julio ever was. That's true, but that's a low bar to hit. Like a low bar, Julio at the end for the Falcons as a red zone threat is a low bar to hit. That doesn't necessarily mean that your questions are solved there. So yeah, their their game is going to be built on running the football. They're in a similar position to the Titans where they're going to just use the holy hell out of Jonathan Taylor while he's still on the rookie contract. And if they had Andrew Luck, they wouldn't use the holy hell out of Jonathan Taylor. They would throw the ball more. They would get more receivers, kind of like what the Dolphins have done, even though I don't know if that's going to work out for them trading for Tyreek Hill. They're doing what the personnel says they should do. And the personnel says we should probably run the ball more because we have maybe the best running back in the NFL who is still only 22 years old and we can destroy his body and go, you know, run the ball for 1500 yards. Here's what I'll say about Matt Ryan in relation to the Colts. And I said this about Jimmy Garoppolo, I think last week or two weeks ago in relation to if he would have got traded to the Colts, he just needs to be as good as Philip Rivers was two years ago. If he's that version of quarterback for them, then I think they'll be fine. You mentioned last year, throughout the year even, that had certain things broke down in that Buffalo Bills game, Philip Rivers would lead the Colts to a playoff victory. And I think that's probably what the Colts are asking for from Matt Ryan this year. Can you at least win us a playoff game? Can we get into the playoffs? And can you at least win us one? I think obviously every team is in a pursuit of a Super Bowl. I don't think that's necessarily the Colts this year. And I don't think that the Colts are necessarily asking Matt Ryan to be that quarterback this year. 
But if you could at least get us into the playoffs, that's an improvement. And if I'm Frank Reich and I'm on the hot seat, I need to get in the playoffs and I need to win in the playoffs. So this is the fascinating part for me of why I'm so fascinated by the Colts organization, because more than any other team, the Colts run their organization differently than everyone else in the league. You know how the joke every year we make is the Colts are always top five in cap space every year. The Colts only sign one year contracts. They only get big time players for one year so that they are never locked into poor contracts. Now, Darius Leonard, they'll sign him to a five-year deal because he's Darius Leonard. Quentin Nelson, they'll sign him to a five-year deal because he's Quentin Nelson. DeForest Buckner, five-year contract. Those guys are special good players, but they aren't alluded to the fact that in free agency, it's always good to have flexibility because teams almost always end up regretting those four or five-year long-term contracts, whether it be, you know, we joke every year about the Jaguars spending 200 million in free agency or the Patriots spending last year or the Jets or the Lions or the Giants. Someone spends a ton of money in free agency. They get better the first year and then they have no cap space the rest of the way. The Colts signed Devin Funches to one-year contracts. They signed, well, they traded for Unique Ngakwe, which is essentially a one-year $13 million contract. If you look at the contract language, it's basically they can cut him for no penalty next year. It's basically a one-year $13 million contract. They signed T.Y. Hilton this last year to a one-year contract. They seem to always value the flexibility of cap space. And I think the reason for that is they don't have any other players worthy of giving the money to. They gave it to Andrew Luck and then Andrew Luck retired. I think if they had Andrew Luck, they would go all in to try and win a championship. But because in 2018, they were the first team to draft two all-pro rookie teammates since Dick Butkus and Gale Sayers with Darius Leonard in the second round, Quentin Nelson in the first round. Because they have that core, they're building something sustainable, but unfortunately, they just haven't gotten the quarterback to build such a sustainable team yet. Or, I mean, like an Aaron Donald type also suffices. But more specifically, they haven't gotten the quarterback in the last four years that'll take them from being a team that loses to the Chiefs and Bills of the world to a team that can compete with the Chiefs and Bills of the world. And the question that I have there is just like what their pathway to a quarterback is or a sustainable long-term option at quarterback. I'd love to say Hook'em Horns is saying Sam Ellinger is the next solution there at quarterback, but that's frankly not going to be the case. Uh, You look at this year's off-season transactions at quarterback, uh, Aaron Rodgers deciding to stay in Green Bay was probably the big wild card for them because obviously buddies, Pat McAfee knows Jim Ursay. Who knows? Maybe that could have been a connection that I could saw happening if Aaron Rodgers wasn't opposed to staying in the Midwest. Russell Wilson deciding to go with Denver. You figured Denver was going to make a hard push at a quarterback. One way or the other, they've been putting their cards on the table that we're going to make a transaction like this for years. Matthew Stafford deciding he wanted to go to sunny Los Angeles instead of staying in the Midwest. Again, another move that you understand geographically, he just wanted to go to that location. And that's fine because you get to go with a talented Hall of Fame head coach in Sean McVay. And then you look at the last major chip, Deshaun Watson. And in the division, I know you say always go for the best trade you possibly get, but the Houstons don't want to see Deshaun Watson in their division consistently year after year, because while they're tanking right now, they want to get better. They want to be like every other franchise and get better. They want to get back to the playoffs. And if Deshaun Watson is constantly impeding your pursuit of even winning your division, that that is not a long-term recipe for success, especially because Deshaun Watson, if he st- keeps his nose clean for the next decade, he's going to be in the league for a long time. The Houston Texans don't want any part of that. So th- there's a problem there and they're good. Th- that's another problem. It's almost a problem that they're good because they'll never be at the top part of the draft to also get one of those elite guys. And unless they do something drastic, like the 49ers did trade multiple first round, picks which they tried up. to do last year. That was underreported. They tried to trade for the number three pick in the draft, but they couldn't 
get up there because they had the 21 pick in the draft and they traded it for Carson Wentz before. Before they got Carson Wentz in February, they tried to trade for the number three pick in the draft and they just couldn't get there. So they've tried every option possible to get that quarterback and every single time they get denied. Why? Because if you take away the quarterback position, the Colts have like the 12th best roster in the NFL. And so they keep every year attracting the 12th best quarterback in the NFL. It's Philip Rivers. It's Carson Wentz. It's Matt Ryan. They just keep attracting tier three quarterbacks and they keep losing to the teams that have tier one quarterbacks and also the Jacksonville Jaguars. And it's so interesting that mostly they keep getting these veterans. They keep getting the Phil Rivers types. They keep getting a Matt Ryan type. When are they going to get like a young guy that they could just try and work with? Hell, if they would have went out there and got Jameis and see what that turned into, that might've been something because at least Jameis, bare minimum, you said he's a talented guy. Actually, that's a big indictment on Carson Wentz. Now, the more I think about it, you actually went out there and got a young guy or a guy that had a promising future, at least when we thought about him in 2017. And you said after a year, we can't stand this guy. Not only can we not win with this guy, we can't stand this guy and we can't get him out soon enough. And that's going to be a thing that I think is going to follow Carson Wentz around for the entire rest and of his And also career, Frank Wright. Because yes, the- and Frank Wright, yes, because they had that connection. They were two guys... They had the same Bible verse. They shared that, that connection. They were connected at the hip in Philly. I vouch for this guy. I'm going to the owner and I'm going to vouch for this guy. And apparently Frank Reich reportedly apologized to the owner and Chris Ballard that he vouched for Carson Wentz. So if you're Frank Reich, you hope this Matt Ryan thing works because you are on the hottest of hot seats, buddy. I don't care. If you get to the playoffs, I don't think that that's going to be good enough for Jim Irsay because he's a good owner, but not a great owner. I would say he's somewhat meddlesome enough to cause issues for a team, but he's also doesn't get in the way of this team being a competitive roster either. Uh, Jim Mercer is somewhere in the middle. If we're tier ranking NFL owners, I would say he's about a mid-tier owner and that's fine. Jim Mercer, at least, you know, he's a personality and I'm watching this documentary about the Lakers. He, he's kind of like a Jerry Buss type, really. And that's fine. Sort of, just Jerry Buss with more alcoholism, it feels like with with Jim Mercer, which I feel bad about joking about alcoholism, but when it's Jim Mercer, it's a little more okay, I suppose. But even hey, still, I, hey, I think Kyle, that I'll drink to that. That was a good joke. I, I I would give a little chuckle to that. But the, to the <laughs> point about the Colts, like the thing that they've done is they haven't locked themselves into like, I really respect the restraint of the Colts to be like, we value sustainability above all else. And every single stopgap guy they've gotten, whether it's Brissett, whether it's Philip Rivers, whether it's Carson Wentz, now Matt Ryan, they're all one year contracts. All of the contracts are set up. Now they got Carson Wentz for two years. And fortunately, yeah. like they took Wentz was less. supposed to be the stopgap. He was supposed to be the guy. He was supposed to be yeah, the guy. And <laughs> they set it up to protect themselves two years and they took less on the trade in order to have Washington take him. They only got two thirds for Carson, which makes it more insane that the Falcons got one third for Matt Ryan. If two thirds is what you're getting for Carson Wentz, but I assume the Colts are taking all $40 million of that contract. So it changes the math a little bit there because now they use that open cap space to get Matt Ryan. They essentially traded Carson Wentz for Matt Ryan and a third round pick. And, you know, that seems kind of fair, right? Like Carson Wentz for Matt Ryan in the third round pick is a trade most of us would make. Like they're kind of similar quarterbacks in that respect. You might get the boom of Carson Wentz every now and then, but, you know, that's basically what they're worth. It's Carson Wentz and a shitty contract for Matt Ryan's shitty contract and a third round pick. And it makes the Colts no better or no worse. But I think that will still be good enough for them to make the playoffs only in a universe where someone has to make the playoffs from the godforsaken AFC South. And I've made the same joke for six years. The AFC South exists to get the four seed, play a meaningless game on ESPN.